Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 to 20, and can be found on page 973 in the Bible underneath the seat in front of you. That's Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 to 20. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen, and till the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for the way that you change lives through your word. And we pray today that as we listen to you, the voice of Jesus will still speak. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's uh, it's one thing to know about something. And it's totally another thing to really know it. Um, for example, at one time I knew a lot of stuff about the Rocky Mountains. I'd seen pictures. John Denver was my favorite songwriter, for goodness sake. But it wasn't until a trip to western Colorado back in, I think it was 2000, when I stood at the peak of one of those mountains out there. And some of you have done the same thing. And looked out over that expanse of God's creation, 
that I feel I began to know the Rocky Mountains. At one time, I think I knew something about poverty. I'd seen pictures of people in poverty. I grew up in a rural part of South Carolina. I thought I knew about poverty. But it wasn't until I went with many of you to Mexico this past summer and walked down the streets of that little village called Quintana Roo and saw the people living in such, such need that I began to understand something about poverty. And even then, who am I kidding? Here I was walking around in my Nikes carrying an iPod and talking to my wife on the cell phone. But I began to know about poverty. There's a difference between knowing about something and really knowing it. We've been, for the past four, five, six weeks or so, bouncing through the book of Matthew, looking at a theme that I've called living missionally every day. We've been looking at how Jesus lived mission and bought or brought over into our lives some of the things that we're learning about the way that he did mission every day. Today we arrive at the story of Jesus' transfiguration. And as I studied this passage this past week, what I noticed was that it's sandwiched between two other really fascinating stories. And I think you've got to look at these two other stories, one of which was read by Jill a, a while ago, to really then get the meaning and to know what the transfiguration was really all about. It was sandwiched in between these two other stories. One is in Matthew 16. It's the story about Peter's confession of Christ. And if you know this story, you know that Jesus asked Peter, right there in verse 15 of chapter 16, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter gave a really good answer. He said in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. A plus, Peter. You knew the right answer. But what's so ironic is that just a few verses later, Jesus turns to Peter and he calls him Satan. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, it was one thing for Peter to know about Jesus and to give a good answer about Jesus. But it was another for Peter to really know Jesus, to understand his person and what he came to do. So that's one story between the two that the transfiguration is sandwiched in. The other one is the one you heard read from Matthew 17. It's verses 14 through 20. It's the healing of this demon-possessed boy. What happens is that a father brings his son to the disciples for healing. This son had had epileptic seizures ever since he was a little boy, and he was under the control of an evil spirit. But the problem was the disciples couldn't cast out this demon. So in verse 18, Jesus casts out the demon and the young man is healed. And then one of the disciples steps up to Jesus in verse 19 and says, Why couldn't we cast it out? What was wrong with us, Jesus, says one of them. And verse 20, Jesus gives him the answer. He says, Because you have so little faith. Again, I find that really interesting. See, it was one thing for the disciples to know about Jesus. 
By this time, they had spent nearly three years with the Messiah. They knew about his healing power. They had witnessed all the miracles. They probably knew the the five steps for casting out a demon or something like that. But it was quite another thing, wasn't it, for the disciples to really believe in Jesus, to really know and appropriate his power over the devil. They were, as you see, men of little faith, little true faith in Christ. So what I gather from these two stories, these two bookends that surround the story of the transfiguration, is that a lot of people are like these disciples. They have all the right answers. They know a lot about the Bible. They have really good theology. They are reformed. They understand what Reformation Sunday is all about. But they're just as uptight and as worried and as bigoted and as stingy with money and as self-righteous as the pagan next door. They can regurgitate the gospel. They listen to Z88. They own a red letter ESV study Bible. They go to Sunday school and church. They might even be leaders in the church. But the gospel that they believe doesn't seem to be changing them. Do you know what I mean? They aren't repenting. They aren't really loving other people. They aren't doing justice in the community. We talked about that a couple of Sundays ago. They aren't wrestling with and overcoming their demons of pride or lust or jealousy or anger. Their beliefs, in other words, haven't moved seemingly, from their head to their heart and then out through their hands to the world. Now, this is a really important question to consider. Is this true about you? Do you know a lot about Jesus? Or do you really know Jesus? For example, has the truth about Jesus moved from your head into your heart to where it's breaking you daily and then out from your heart through your hands in loving, self-giving service to others, your family, your neighborhood, your city, your workplace, your school. Is the truth about Jesus having that life-changing, transforming power in your life? I think about myself. Look, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be growing in holiness. I'm supposed to be a man of courage, you know, and of love and of faith and of hope and so on. But so often I feel like I'm going backwards instead of forwards. So often, I confess to you, my heart seems cold toward God, not warm, not hot, cold toward other people. I can give you the gospel, but sometimes I really wonder how much I believe it. Can you identify? Do you know what you and I need? The same thing Peter, James, John, and these other nine disciples needed. We need to see the real Jesus, people. 
We need to see the real Jesus. Then and only then will what we know about Him move from our head to our heart and out through our hands to the world. To see and to comprehend a little glimpse of the real glory of Christ. That's what this story will do for us. This story about the transfiguration. I'm convinced that's what this story will begin to do for us even today. So what I want to do is share with you three things that the transfiguration reveals about Jesus, the real Jesus, that we might know Him and be changed by Him. Three things. First, the transfiguration reveals His deity, His grace, and His mission. I wish I had more time. This story really could take three, four, five sermons you're probably going to feel like we're just barely getting into it today. But let's make a beginning. First, the transfiguration reveals to us Jesus' deity. What is deity, you're asking? Deity means his godness. Another word would be his divinity. The fact that Jesus is God is revealed in this story about the transfiguration. So you heard the story earlier. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up this high mountain. Most scholars believe it's Mount Hermon, about 11,000 feet high. And in verse 2 it says, there he was, and the word is transfigured before them. Now that's not a word we use any. I mean, I doubt you've ever used this word to describe anything in your experience. It's a very unique word referring to this episode in the life of Christ. What does it mean? The word transfiguration means transformation. Or literally, the Greek word is metamorphosis. You know about that. And you have used that word. It means a change of appearance or form. A change on the outside, listen, that comes from the inside. That's what transfiguration means means. What I want you to do is notice all the details about the transfiguration with me. First of all, his face, the face of Jesus. It radiated light as bright as the sun, it says there in uh, verse 2. His face shone like the sun, it says. You might remember back in uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 34, when Moses spent time with God up on Mount Sinai. The Bible tells us that when he came down, he had spent 40 days and 40 nights with God. And when he came down the side of uh, Mount Sinai, Moses' face shone. But it was a reflected light. Moses' face was like the moon. You know, when you look up at the moon, you see the moon shining, but it's reflected light. It's the light of the sun reflecting off of the moon. But the face of Jesus here in this story is not like the moon, it's like the sun itself. The face of Jesus was making light. It radiated light. It didn't reflect the light of God. It was the light of God. Have you ever looked at the sun directly? Don't. But that's what was happening. Peter, James, and John were looking into the face of, as it were, the sun itself generated out of the Son, S-O-N, of God. And the same with his clothing in verse 2. If you read the account of the transfiguration given us by Mark, he says that the clothing of Jesus became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. That's a descriptive way of describing the brightness of Jesus' clothing. 
Luke says that they were bright as a flash of lightning. And then notice verse 5. A a bright cloud enveloped Jesus, James, Peter, John, Moses, and Elijah. This bright cloud enveloped them. You know what that is? It is the Shekinah glory cloud. The same cloud that if you remember the history of... Remember out of Egypt... Uh, remember the man of God, Moses, leading the people of Israel up out of Egypt, following the cloud, the cloudy pillar? That was the glory cloud, the presence of God for Israel. It's the same cloud that covered Mount Sinai, as I was talking about, when Moses was up there meeting with God. It was the same cloud that filled the tabernacle after it was built, that filled the temple after Solomon built it and dedicated it. And it was so awesome that the priests couldn't even enter the temple because of the presence of the Shekinah glory cloud. The Shekinah glory cloud was the very presence of God, the visible manifestation of God's glory. Now, there's another word that we don't usually use, but the word glory means heaviness or weight. The awesomeness, we use that word a lot, almost too much. It's lost some of its meaning, but that's what glory is, the awesome weight and the majesty of God himself. That's what this cloud that came down was. And if there's any doubt about the deity or the divinity of Jesus, out of this glory cloud comes the voice of the Father in verse 5. And the voice says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So, what do we learn from all these details? We learn that the transfiguration was the uncovering of Jesus' intrinsic glory and divinity. It had been temporarily veiled by the humble birth and the lowly life of Jesus. For the 33 years that he'd been living here on the earth, it had been veiled, this glory, this majesty, this deity, but now it is on full display on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember The Wizard of Oz? I've told you before, it's one of my favorite movies. Remember the climactic scene there where Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Lion and the Scarecrow are there before the great, the mighty Oz and Toto walks over there to the curtain and pulls it back and then you see, oh, Oz is just an old bumbling man Not the great, the mighty Oz. Well, see, the transfiguration is the opposite of that. Jesus pulls back the curtain of his humanity and you see that behind the curtain is not just a man, but God himself, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who, it says in Hebrews 1, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Friends, we do not believe in a boring Jesus. We do not believe in a small, wimpy, bland, nice, safe Jesus. The Scriptures reveal here a Jesus who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. A Jesus who will one day, as we read earlier in this uh, or in chapter 16, a Jesus who will one day come in his father's glory with his angels and reward each person according to what he has done. 
A Jesus who, as we read in Revelation 5, is worthy to receive power and wealth and, and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. No wonder that in our text today, verse 6, the disciples fell face down to the ground, terrified. No wonder that John, who was here on the Mount of Transfiguration, would remember this event and later write in chapter 1 of his book, we have seen his, what? Glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. No wonder that Peter, who was also here seeing this, would later write in Second Peter chapter 1, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What an experience that had to be. Jesus Christ is God. We were all transfixed, weren't we, a few weeks ago by the story of the rescue of those 33 Chilean miners. And I know this has figured into many sermon illustrations all around our country. But it was a great story. This is a picture here of one of the miners soon after being rescued out of the, out of the pit that he was in. The story that a lot of people still don't know, though, is the role that Campus Crusade for Christ played in the experience that the miners had when they were still underground. Campus Crusade provided MP3 players that had on them part of the Jesus film audio in Spanish, as well as the Spanish New Testament. Those things went down underground to them. Some of the miners were believers in Christ, are believers in Christ. One of them's name is Christian Morera, And uh, he wrote a letter to the national director of um, Campus Crusade for Christ. No, sorry, that is the director, right? Christian Morera. The miner's name was Jose uh, Enriquez. You can tell I'm not very Spanish. But Jose wrote Christian Morera a thank you note for what he had done, what Campus Crusade had done. And in this note, he says things like this, I want to express my appreciation for this great blessing for me and my coworkers. It will be very good for our edification. He said, I'm well because Christ lives in me. He said, we have prayer services at 12 a.m. and 6 p.m. And here's what really inspired me. Jose ended his letter with Psalm 95, verse 4. And that's what's printed on the back of these T-shirts. These T-shirts were provided by Campus Crusade, has Jesus Film logo on the sleeve, and on the back, in Spanish, are these words from Psalm 95, in his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. And the world admired, rightfully so, the courage of those miners. But where did the courage come from? Was it just that these people were positive thinkers? No, not at all. It came from their knowledge of the deity of Christ and the power of God and the sovereignty of the Lord. Do you need courage today? Courage to persevere in trial? Hmm? Courage to forgive somebody? Courage to reach out to your neighbors? Courage to keep loving to keep moving forward, then think about the transfiguration. 
Look at the face of Jesus shining with the glory of deity. Look at his clothing. Look at the Shekinah glory cloud surrounding him. Listen to the voice out of the cloud. This is my son affirming God the son. And be encouraged. You might have just a little faith. That's okay. Because you have a really big Jesus. Got it? All right. The first thing the transfiguration reveals is the deity of Jesus. But let's go one step further. What else does it reveal? It reveals the grace of Jesus. The transfiguration reveals Jesus' grace. What does grace mean? It means free, unmerited, undeserved favor. How do you see grace in this passage? Let me mention three ways. The first way we see grace in this story about the transfiguration is that, and this is almost so obvious, you might miss it. Peter, James, and John didn't die. (laughs) Peter, James, and John didn't die when they saw the glory of God. That's grace. Why do I say that? Well, again, go back in your mind to Moses. Moses in Exodus 33 is very depressed. He is about ready to give up. Things have been bad. He has just seen his people build the golden calf. And Moses just thinks, my goodness, what am I going to do with these people? So in Exodus 33, Moses prays to God and he says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory and it'll be enough. Show me your glory and we can go on together to lead these people. If you'll show me your glory, Lord, I'll be okay. And you know what God said? He said, Moses, I love you. And I want to cause all my goodness to pass by in front of you. But Moses, you can't see my face. You can't see my glory because no one can see me and live. And so what God did was in the next chapter of Exodus, God puts his hand over Moses' eyes in a way and hides him in a cleft in the rock. And then God passes by and he pronounces his name in the presence of Moses. But Moses is hiding behind a rock. He's not looking directly into the glory and the face of God. If Moses were not hidden in the cleft of that rock, the sight of the glory of God would have killed him. Doesn't that indicate to you what a gulf there is between a holy God and a sinful world? That we cannot even see the glory of God or else we would die. So, how in the world in Matthew 17 can sinful human beings like Peter, James, and John, and how will you one day be able to see the glory of God? How can they gaze upon an infinitely holy perfectly pure God and not be consumed? Answer, because on the cross, Jesus became our sin. He absorbed in himself our sins. That's what he died for. When he was nailed on the cross, he was dying for our offenses, our transgressions against God. And our sin, it says in the Bible, was laid upon Jesus. And the sight was so revolting to God the Father as he looked down from heaven to his son 
that he turned his gaze away from Christ. And that's what prompted Jesus to cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, God turned his face away from Jesus on the cross so that you can turn your face toward God and see his glory and live forever. That's grace. Second sign of grace. The voice out of the cloud in verse 5. We've talked about it already. God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You might know that those are the very same words that God said when Jesus was baptized earlier in this book, Matthew chapter 3. But they are also the words God speaks over you if you're a Christian. If the blood of Christ has covered your sin, guess what? You are an adopted son or daughter of God. You've been given the spirit of sonship. It says in the book of Romans, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You're God's child if you're trusting in Jesus. God says about you the same thing that he says about Jesus. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. With you, I'm happy. Many of you never got the blessing of your earthly father. You may go to your grave, never getting the blessing of your earthly father. That's not a good thing. That's a hurtful thing. But as a child of God, you know what? You have the blessing of your heavenly father. And it's right here in verse 5. He has justified you because of Jesus. He has imputed to your account the very righteousness of Jesus. That's what Reformation Sunday is all about. Jesus obeyed the law of God perfectly for you. He paid the debt of your sins for you. Everything Jesus did to glorify and honor God, He did for you and as you. And so God couldn't be more pleased with you than He is already. Nothing you do can possibly make God love you more. And nothing you do can possibly make him love you less. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's grace. Third sign of grace in this story. Look at how Jesus treats Peter, James, and John. Look with me at verse 7. You notice this? It says, Jesus came and touched them and said, get up. Don't be afraid. Verse 8 says, When they looked up, they saw nobody except Jesus. Now, friends, this is a touching, touching couple of verses. The power of touch. It's amazing, isn't it? Last weekend, many of us went to Cocoa Beach for Breakaway, our marriage retreat. I don't know if you read my weekly email last week. I made a, an error. I said that my wife and I joined 17 other couples. I don't know where I got that, that number. We joined 34 other couples. There were 35 couples there, including us. And at the very end of Breakaway, it was a wonderful retreat. Many thanks to those of you who worked on it. 
At the end of the retreat, we closed the, the retreat with worship, and we, we had communion. We served communion as couples. And I took the bread to my wife and handed her the bread, the body of Christ, and we shared the bread together, and then we embraced. And I, I try to hug my wife a lot. I just want you to know. But this was a sweet hug. And we just felt the love for each other that God had given to us. And the power of touch was so healing and so redemptive. And I don't want you to miss what God does here. Jesus reaches down to these poor, broken, fumbling men and touches them. And they look up and they see nobody but him. May that be our experience every single day as the people of God. That's grace. It's what it's about. And do you hear what Jesus says to them? Don't be afraid. Are you longing to be loved? To be really loved by somebody who won't leave you and won't betray you? I bet you are. Do you wish somebody would touch you at the deepest level of your being and say, do not fear Don't give up. I believe in you. Your life is significant to me. I am yours and you are mine. We all long for that, don't we? Well, think about the transfiguration. It's here. And then you can sing with Charles Wesley, that hymn we often sing. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. That's what grace gives you the privilege of doing. So the transfiguration reveals the deity of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. And in the last place, very briefly, The mission of Jesus. Look with me again at verse 3. It says, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now we could spend a lot of our time on questions here. We could wonder, why Moses and Elijah? What's that all about? And there are a lot of good answers to that question. We could also ask about what Peter says in verse 4. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And there are a lot of fascinating answers as to why did Peter say that? I mean, Luke says that Peter was sleepy and he didn't know what he was saying. And I kind of believe that. (laughs) But anyway, the question I'd rather answer is this. What do you suppose? It says that they were talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. What do you suppose they were talking about? Well, guess what? We're told what they were talking about. If you were to look over in Luke's account of the transfiguration, it says in Luke 9, 31, that they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. His departure. Interestingly, in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, the word for departure is exodus. Exodus. Think of Moses, who is here. Think of exodus 
Just as Moses led God's people out of their physical bondage in Egypt, so Jesus on the cross led God's people out of their spiritual bondage to sin. They spoke about that exodus. In other words, Jesus went from the mountaintop experience of glory to the valley of suffering and death on the cross. That was his mission, to set his people free from their Egypt of sin and bring them into the promised land of eternal life. That's what his mission was. So we could go on and on about this, but what I want to do is bring this to a close with a very, very important question. What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? We've seen in the transfiguration the real Jesus, right? The fact that He is God in the flesh. That He is the giver of grace to the broken and to the undeserving. And that He came to suffer in the place of sinners and to break break them free out of their prison house of sin and death. How have you responded to that truth? Have you responded to that truth? Do you know Jesus or do you just know a lot about Jesus? Like I asked at the beginning. Have these truths that I've talked about today moved from your head to your heart and out through your hands? Verse 5 says that there's only one way to respond to such a Jesus. Three little words, listen to Him. Listen to Him. What I hear there is stop trifling with Jesus. Stop playing around with religion and come to the real Christ. Stop worshiping a figment of your imagination, Jesus. Stop believing in a bland, wimpy, safe Jesus. And bow at the feet of the real one. Obey Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. Get to know Him. Because to know Him is to really live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your amazing transfiguration. We would experience something like Peter, James, and John did that day. Lord, we would like to look up and see nobody except You. We would like to see your face, your clothing. We would love to feel your touch on our shoulder, to hear your voice saying, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I'm very, very happy. So Lord, bring us back again and again to the Mount of Transfiguration. And also, help us to go with you into the valley of the cross, to die to self and to follow you in your mission. Help us, O Lord, not to just know about you, but to know you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.